try to adjust this. I think last time I heard that it needed adjusting. So, yeah, we've been in the book of Acts, and this week we're going to take a step away from the book of Acts. I did ask Pastor Aaron if he wanted me to continue, and I was encouraged by his zeal to, he said, I'm excited about Acts chapter 2, let's just wait. So he's going to continue on in the book of Acts next week, Lord willing. This week we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible, I don't think any of this will be on the screen. Uh, We didn't have a chance to send it out, so we're going to go old school and just follow along. If you have your bulletin, you can take notes there. We're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, particularly just two verses, 24 and 25, but I'm going to read the context before it. So Hebrews chapter 10. So starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up, to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, Lance Armstrong has become a household name in the cycling world. If you don't know who Lance Armstrong is, go ahead and be brave and raise your hand. If you've never heard of this guy's name, okay, I don't see any hands. I'll take that as we all know the name Lance Armstrong. He was a, he's a well-known bicyclist or cyclist. Um, what some of you might not know, if you're like me and you're ignorant about the sport of cycling, is that it's actually a team sport. You know, I knew the Tour de France. I've heard of it. Usually you have one guy who or women. I don't even know if it's a guys. And I don't even know much about Tour de France. I don't know much about cycling. So I didn't know that it's a sport that is actually for teams. And the way it works is there's actually eight racers or so on a team. And those guys are, or girls are called a, um, what is it called? Anybody? Oh, I didn't write it down. It's like a French word. A domestique or a domestic. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly. That's what you call the, the people on the team for a, a racing team. And the way it works is those guys or girls, they're actually not going to win. They're almost certainly not going to win. And so what they do is they race in front of the leader of the team. In this case, Lance Armstrong was typically the leader of his team. And the reason they do that is so the the racers in front, who almost certainly are not going to win, will provide a barrier to the wind. And those racers then provide the opportunity for the leader to draft. And as I read, drafting, this technique in racing, enables the leader to save 20 to 40% of their energy. And obviously, when they're the strongest racer, that enables them then to hopefully win the race. And usually, it's the leader that we see on the front page 
or on the headline or in the movie, but it's actually the team that wins and they split the money together. Um, Even the staff apparently gets some of the earnings. So we all love uh, a good story, a sports story about a self-made hero, someone who just by their own sweat and blood climbs to the top and wins the victory. But the reality of the world we live in is that's just not the case. We don't live in a world where there's a self-made man or woman. There's, we live in a world where we are reliant on other people. We need to work together. We're, we're a team. Um, God's created this world that way. And in the book of Hebrews, particularly the whole book, but in the section we're going to look at, the, the author of Hebrews wants to remind the original audience that is the world we live in. They need other people. And the main point, um, it won't be on there, I don't think, but it's just perseverance, which means finishing the race. Perseverance in the Christian faith is not just a personal pursuit, but a corporate commitment. So perseverance, finishing the race, finishing in the Christian faith, holding firm to the end, it's not just a personal pursuit, but a corporate commitment. That's my summary of what we see in these two verses, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25. So let's look at that. So Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, it was written to Jewish Christians and also Gentile Christians who had um, been drawn to Judaism. All of them now had, had been following Jesus as Christians. But now because of persecution, they're tempted to let go of Christ in exchange for their old religion, for Judaism or to escape persecution and suffering. So they're tempted because now as Christians, gathering as Christians, there's persecution they weren't receiving when they were in Judaism. And so the book of Hebrews is written, the whole, whole book up until now has basically been saying one main thing. It's been screaming, Jesus is superior to that old religion that you had been in. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than angels. He's better than any Old Testament sacrifice or Old Testament high priest. Jesus is superior. Therefore, do not leave him. Hold fast to him. So, uh, and that's what we see in verses 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 19. This begins to be kind of a transition to more of an exhortation, an encouragement to the church. And I just want to briefly step through that before we get to our verses. So first, in verse 19, why? Why is Jesus superior? It begins with some reasons. Therefore, since, verse 19, Jesus' past sacrifice has opened the way to God. Jesus' past sacrifice of his own body has provided this new and living way into the presence of God. It's new because it was not made. In the the Old Testament, it was only certain people at certain times that had access to the holy place, to God's presence. But now through Jesus, he has made an effective, eternally effective way for not just some people, but all people. Anyone who looks to Christ in faith has access to God. He is superior to that old system. And secondly, since Jesus' present work, his continued work, We see this in verse 21 of being the great high priest for his people. Presently, he offers intercession for his people. He ensures that those who have looked to him in faith can continue to enjoy that right relationship with God. 
So it's his past work and his present work that makes him superior. He's greater. He's better than any Old Testament thing. They all pointed to him. He did what no other sacrifice, no other person could do. And so now the author moves into some exhortations. He's saying, because Jesus is greater, here's what he's done. He's brought us to God. He's reconciled people to God. So we see, let us. Those are some encouragements, some exhortations to the church. Let us, in verse 22, uh, sorry, verse 23. No, no, verse 22. He's really opened the way to God. So therefore, draw near to God. He's really made the way. The way is there. You can be sure when you put your trust in Jesus to write you with God by his own body and blood, by his resurrection, you can be sure you have access to God. You really do. Therefore, draw near. Take advantage of that access. Draw near to God through him. Secondly, hold fast in verse 23. Since Jesus has really opened the way to God, hold fast. He is the way. It's true. It really is true. Hold fast with confidence to that confession. For he who promised is faithful. God is faithful. And then next is what we're going to focus on this morning. And it might seem like it comes out of left field for some people, but to summarize again, the main point, perseverance, holding fast to Jesus, continuing to the end so that we can enjoy eternal relationship with God, is not just a personal pursuit, although it is that. It is also a community or a co- corporate commitment. And so we'll look at that in three parts. What does that corporate commitment look like? So, should have made sure it was in order. Five. Forgive me. Verse 24. Yes. So verse 24. Let's start there. Because perseverance is not just a personal pursuit, but a corporate commitment, we must be committed to in considering each other. We must be committed to considering each other. That's what it looks like as a community. So we see that in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And so the first word here is really central to the whole two verses, consider. One commentator commentator points out the word means to notice or pay attention to or to look at closely. So what are these Hebrew Christians, what are they to look at closely? What are they to consider and pay attention to? Well, it's, it's more than just one another. In particular, it's how they can stir one another up to love and good works. And when you think about the New Testament, for anyone who's familiar with the New Testament, if you could summarize the right response to the gospel, this good news of what Jesus has done, love and good works are all over the New Testament. That is really the way you could summarize how Christians, how those who believe in Jesus are to respond to his good gift, love Love God and love others and to do good works. Uh, Let me just take Titus chapter 2, for example. So in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And just to name one about love, we know that Jesus in the Gospels summarized the the whole Old Testament by saying it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love others, love your neighbor as yourself. That really is what Christians are to do. It's how we are to live and respond to the Gospel. And here is what is maybe surprising, but definitely humbling. If you implicitly see what he's saying, he's saying, if you need stirred up to do the very things that you've been saved to do, that, that's kind of humbling, isn't it? The very purpose that God has rescued his people is so that they could be zealous for good works, so they could love him and love others. And yet he's saying, but you need stirred up to do that. That's humbling. I wish that, that I woke up first thing in the morning and this is my thought. Man, how can I love my wife, my kids, my, my family, my coworkers? How can I serve my neighbor? How can I do good works? I just want to do that. You know what? Occasionally, that happens. But not, definitely not all the time. You know what? I need stirred up. I need provoked. In fact, the word stirred up, it's usually used negatively to provoke. Now, lovely my brother is here he knows all about provoking my parents know all about how he provoked one another and what came to mind because we're used to fighting now I, I confess I've seen a couple YouTube videos about ultimate fighting where people fight each other you do not need to provoke those men to fight they are ready they're standing all you do is you just look at them and they're ready to punch you in the face now instead what we need to see in this word is provoke means you've got to actually walk up to somebody and start pushing them and say, hey, hey, I don't like the, the color of the shirt you're wearing. And you push them and you poke them. You have to really prod them to get them to fight. That's actually the word that's being used here. It's, it's, it's one that reminds us we actually need someone to provoke us to love and good works. We need provoked to do that. Because you know what? Often we're complacent. Our love is stagnant. We need people. We need brothers and sisters to stir us up. So, the author of Hebrews is, he's saying, consider, think about how you can stir up, how you can provoke others in the church to love and good works. So of all the things that we could consider when we gather together or just when you wake up in the morning, there's lots of things that do cross our minds, right? And a lot of them often are kind of self-centered. If I look at myself, it's what I'm going to do or what I'm going to wear, what other people will think about me, as opposed to how can I stir up, how can I cause and provoke love in my brothers and sisters in Christ? That's what he's calling them to do, because we need it. We need stirred up. And then secondly, think about that. Think about how many times you're just kind of in a personal pit. You're discouraged, you're stuck, thinking about life and and its, its real difficulties, and somebody, some brother or sister, um, speaks a, a timely word to you. Or they, they do a sacrificial act of love for you. They give you a generous gift. Or they, they step out and give you a caring hug. 
that spurs you instead to get out of yourself and to think of others. You know, we need that. I need that. And so that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. We need to, to, be a, to continue to persevere in the faith. We need to be a people who are committed to considering one another. So that's the first thing. The second thing is in verse 25. He says, again, this point is because perseverance is not just a personal pursuit, but a corporate commitment, we need to be committed to gathering together. So this second point, it really flows out of the first one. It's connected to the first one. So in the first century, there were no phones. There's no email. There's no live stream for people to hook into. There's no YouTube. There's no social media. To stir someone up to love and good works, you had to be in the same place as them, to physically be able to speak words to them, to be in their presence so you could see one another and give an example to one another. And so that's why there's, I think there's a clear connection here. How do you stir someone up if you're not around them? And he's saying, you need to continue gathering together. So let me read the verse. He says, um, in verse 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. And so he's telling them, some of them, some people in this, whether it's one particular church or multiple churches that he's writing to, some of them are neglecting gathering together. And we don't know exactly why. I think one of the clearest reasons is probably because of the persecution that was resulting for their commitment to Christ. As they said, we are connected to Christ and his people and therefore we're gathering together with those people it was clear that they were no longer part of Old Testament Judaism and they were also being persecuted as a result of being a part of this new religion. Some other possible reasons that they have neglected to gather, this is from the dictionary of Paul in his letters, it says that it could have been the delay of Christ's return. This might have been written to second generation Christians and it started to seem like, is Jesus ever going to come back? You know, we heard the gospel, we heard that Jesus is returning, but it seems like he's slow in coming. So maybe it was the delay in Christ's return that made them think, we're just not going to follow this Jesus anymore. Maybe he's not coming back. It could have been social ostracism and persecution that I just mentioned. It could also have been just a general waning of enthusiasm or erosion of confidence. They were no longer believed or trusted in the things that they'd heard. And therefore, what they've chosen is to forsake, to neglect gathering together. It could have been any of those reasons or a combination. And the word forsake, you know, I wanted to be really careful. Aaron, when I told him what I was going to preach, he said, that's a great passage. Be very careful as you preach through it. Because we live in a time right now where some people aren't here and they have a good reason not to be. Pastor Aaron is not here because he's considered... Okay, I, I tested positive for COVID. I want to make sure that I don't get anyone else sick. He's considering others in his not gathering here. So this is somewhat nuanced. I'm not a nuanced person, forgive me. But these people are forsaking the gathering. Now that is a strong word. The word forsake is used by Jesus on the cross when he was dying for his people. He said, oh, he, was, he suffered separation. And that's a key part of forsaking. It's separation from he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To forsake is to abandon. 
is to desert. So the author is saying that this was their habit. They have made a custom. They've made it their habit or routine to forsake. They basically have turned away from the people of God and gathering with them because they said it's not worth it. We don't want the persecution that comes with this. We're being ostracized because of it in our community. We don't want it. We're no longer going to follow this Jesus or be with his people. So I just want to hit that it is a strong forsaking. The author warns this audience. He says that is deadly. That is dangerous. It's something that you must not do. You need to continue gathering. Do not neglect gathering together if you want to persevere in the faith. So one obvious reason is because this is the way that uh, it's gathering together that Christians can spur one another to love and good works. Like I've just said, in order to speak those words, they need to actually be together. And without being spurred, quite possibly and quite probably, they will continue on moving further and further away from God and his people. And I think also it's not only just general gatherings that the author has in mind here. It's probably what we would call like a Sunday gathering. The time that they shared in hearing God's word preached. They'd sit together under God's word. They would share in the Lord's Supper together. They would sing songs of praise to God. They'd pray. It was these particular gatherings I think he has in mind. These are God-given gifts to us to strengthen us in our faith, to ensure that we can continue persevering in the faith. He says, don't neglect that. So before I knew that I would be preaching this Sunday, I, I wanted to be sure. I knew that I needed it, and I was kind of excited. I'd never been to the Ironman Summit, and I wanted to go. And so yesterday I went, and it was really good. You know, I, let me use, here's my phrase. It was amazingly, mundanely encouraging. You know, it wasn't anything special. We watched someone else give two messages, live-streamed in the fellowship hall. We sang songs together. We prayed together, or were led in prayer um, by other people, and we just talked a little bit. And you know what? Again, it was not some amazing mountaintop experience, but what it was is something I can walk away saying, I know that I'm, as a result of attending this gathering with these brothers, I I know that I'm a better husband. I'm going to be strengthened in being a husband. I'm going to be strengthened in being a father and a friend and a Christian. It was good. It was good to be together. Good to speak words together. And so I simply want to ask you on this. Are you making it a priority to gather with brothers and sisters? So again, I want to be sensitive to our current context with what's going on with COVID. God knows our hearts. He knows our efforts. He knows when we're considering other people as we decide whether or not we should be attending a Sunday gathering like this. But I I just want you to ask yourself, whether you're here or watching on the live stream, why are you not gathering with people? Are you making gathering with people, whether it's Sunday or outside of it, like 242 or a discipleship group or a one-on-one time of prayer, are you making that a priority? It's God's kindness to us in giving us these times. And it's not just an abstract sense that we're connected to the people of God. It's a particular sense, particular people that we can gather with to encourage. And so that's the last point in verse 25 is encouragement. Because perseverance is not just a personal pursuit, but a corporate commitment, we must be committed to encouraging one another. So we must be committed 
to considering each other. We must be committed to gathering together. And we must be committed to encouraging one another. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day approaching, or the day drawing near. So this is a, a memory verse. I think I memorized it in NIV. And as I, yeah, as I say it, I'm, NIV is coming to my mind. But, so what exactly is this encouragement? What is, what is he talking about when he uses this word encouragement? How? What does it mean? Uh, different ways this word is translated is exhortation, comfort, warning, or strengthening. So in the immediate context, this word encouragement, it's related to, to Jesus' return. It says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is the day that Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, to establish his kingdom, to right all wrongs. And he's saying, encourage one another in light of Jesus' return. And so encouragement's related to that. Secondly, we see this word encouragement used in Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 13. And so in Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 13, it's, it's a warning section, an encouragement. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort, the word is encourage, encourage one another as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then maybe more instructive, maybe most instructive, and I found this a little bit funny, at the end of the uh, book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews calls the entire book of Hebrews an encouragement. Not only that, he calls it a brief. He says, I've written to you briefly, these 13 chapters. As uh, someone who preaches, I can relate to that. So, he, he says, uh, I've written to you briefly this word of encouragement. And so he, he entitles this entire letter written to the, book, to the Hebrews as an encouragement, an exhortation. And what is the entire book of Hebrews about? It's about the greatness, the superiority of Jesus, who he is and what he's done to bring his people to God and their response to it, an encouragement to hold fast. And so that helps us understand what encouragement looks like. So putting it all together, we must encourage one another because despite the superiority of the Savior, we are weak and sin is dangerously deceptive. And we need brothers and sisters to call us up, to encourage and strengthen us and also to call us out, to call out when we're walking not in step with the Spirit, not following faithfully with Jesus. Both of those fall under encouragement, exhortation. We need to be reminded of who Jesus is, what he's done to bring us to God, and that he's coming back. So that means what encouragement is not. And so we don't want to, we would fail at encouragement if we didn't really understand what it was. So encouragement is not just saying kind things to someone. It's not speaking empty platitudes to someone in response to their real pain. It's not blowing smoke. It's not making up nice things to tell someone to try to make them feel better, cheer them up. It's speaking the truth, predominantly the truth about Jesus, in love. 
And in Proverbs 25, 11, it says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And I think real encouragement, to really encourage someone in their walk, means that you need to be able to speak a fitting word to them. And that requires us to actually know other people, to know them well. We need to know what they're struggling with. We need to know how they're designed, who they are, how they live, what they like and don't like, what they're struggling with and dealing with in life in order to speak a right word, a good word to them. So again, that takes, one, fellowship. It takes gathering together, knowing each other well enough to do that. Uh, I think this was four years ago. I read a book, and I'd highly recommend it. It was a book called Encouragement by Larry Crabb. You can read the first uh, two or three chapters on Google Books if you're interested and want to try it out. So I looked it up so I could find this quote because I like his definition of encouragement. He said, Encouragement is the kind of expression that helps someone want to be a better Christian even when life is tough. So encouragement is, is the kind of expression that helps someone want to be a better Christian even when life is tough. And so... Not only do we all want people like that around us, we, we need people like that around us. The author of Hebrews is telling us in order to persevere in the faith, we need to be that kind of people and we need to be around that kind of people. We, as a church, need to be committed to considering one another, to encouraging each other, to gathering together. And so, in an even greater picture, later in his book, I thought this was, one, just an encouragement to me, a challenge to me and challenge to us. So we just mentioned this morning, Walt did, that we're looking to plant a church. And he makes a note in this book, one of the principles of the book that he's written about encouragement is only an encouraged community will sustain missional involvement. So as we think about applying that to our life, if we want to plant a church somewhere, first of all, we need to join together with one another in prayer, praying for one another, knowing one another, speaking words of encouragement to one another. It's that kind of church that can sustain the type of missional involvement, which means giving up our resources, sending people out, giving money, praying for some other body. So if we want to be a a church committed to missional involvement, we need to be an encouraged community. So in closing, and I thought about this this morning, I just found it really encouraging. Um, And this is kind of an example for us to finish of what what I think is a piece of encouragement we can speak to one another. So I opened up talking about Lance Armstrong. He's this, so he's the leader of the team and he would, he's won several races. The way it worked was his team would ride in front of him, breaking the wind so that he could save some energy so at the end of the race, he could finish the leg and win. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this word founder and perfecter, in some translations it's the pioneer. And so as I thought about that this morning, just the encouragement that we have in Christ, 
the, the opening illustration I used is true for all humanity apart from Christ. We are a needy people. We're a sinful people. We're a weak people. We need each other. And yet, if we look at this picture of Jesus, he's the pioneer of our faith. He is one who possessed strength that we do not have, which enabled him to accomplish the purposes and will of God. So in that picture, Jesus didn't need to ride behind other people so that he could conserve his strength. He, in fact, rides in front, blocking the wind so that the other people have strength and can finish the race. And so just thinking about that, that's true of Christ. He is strong. And because of his strength, we can look to him and receive the strength we need to finish the race. That's, in fact, one of the encouragements in the book of Hebrews, is that in chapter 4, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have one who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let me just close by praying for us. Lord, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for brothers and sisters who aren't here and some of whom have made that choice because they love you and they love other people and they don't want to get them sick. But Lord, you know our hearts, you know our needs, you know that we are weak and you and your grace have given us this gift of gathering together, of hearing your word, of being together with people who have your spirit and we ask for help. Lord, help us to be a people who consider each other and who speak words of encouragement, good, right encouragement at the right time so that we can persevere in the faith. Lord, we ask for that for your sake. Lord, that you'd be glorified in this city and in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.